Let's begin. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, reading to verse 3. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? And so we're about to begin a series taken from the book of Ecclesiastes. And the reason why I decided to teach this book is because of the timeliness of its message. I, I believe we're living in days that this, con, this uh, the contents of this book, we're living in days that the contents of this book can uh, apply to, can inform us about. And so as I was considering what book we ought to move into and study after we finished uh, the book of Proverbs, it, it became obvious to me that the book that would be uh, important for us to look at would be the book of Ecclesiastes, because this book encourages us to discover what we would call our our highest purpose. And he's going to make it very clear as we go through Ecclesiastes that everything that eliminates God is without purpose and ultimately is meaningless. The word vanity speaks of something that is worthless. And you can see that he begins even from the beginning in verse 2 by saying vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The point he's making is that life without God has no purpose and has no meaning. And that would include every human endeavor. And uh, he, he speaks concerning every human endeavor and uses a phrase, uh, under the sun. So you're going to see that phrase repeated, under the sun, uh, some 29 times as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes. And so all human endeavors uh, that exclude God from anything uh, is all vanity. The word vanity itself is used 37 times, and it's used to describe a variety of things. Vanity is used to describe human labors, human wisdom, prestige. It speaks concerning pleasure. It describes youthful strength, and, and it even goes so far as to describe human knowledge. So everything done under heaven without God is completely useless. Everything done under heaven without God is vanity. And that's the point he's making. Now, at the end of the book, Solomon will conclude with what is the purpose of our lives. And so we'll see that when we get to chapter 12, because in verses 13 and 14, he'll say it to us. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every work into judgment including every secret thing, whether it is good or whether it is evil. So he concludes, and we'll see that when we get there in chapter 12, with what matters. What matters is fearing God and keeping his word. So as we look at this, I'll continue my background, and then we'll look into the study. This book is attributed to, whom it refers to, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. It's attributed to King Solomon. Eight times... Uh, he gives clues to himself as the author. In verse 1, notice how he calls himself son of David. Uh, notice in verses 1 as well as verse 12, he refers to himself as the king of Jerusalem and Israel. In uh, chapter 1 in verse 16, he is identified as the wisest man. In chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, 
He's identified as a builder of great works. In chapter 2, verse 7, he possesses great herds. Chapter 2, verse 8, he has great wealth. And in chapter 2, verse 9, he was greater, greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem. All of this describes King Solomon. So, Solomon. Solomon was the son of King David and a woman by the name of Bathsheba. And he is the wisest man of his time. It is believed that he was born around 990 before Christ. He was crowned in 970 before Christ. He died around 930 before Christ. When we read 1 Kings, 1 Kings records that God appeared to Solomon. And when God appeared to Solomon, he asked him a question that, that is, to me, it's always been an amazing question because he, he asked him this, what shall I give you? Now, if you were asked that question by God, say God would appear to you. And he said to you, what do you want? What shall I give unto you? Can you imagine what you would ask for? What would you ask for? You know, I, I've said this before. Some of you might remember. Um, when my children were small, uh, we read 1 Kings together. I gave my children devotions. And we were in 1 Kings, and we got to the portion of Scripture where, where God is speaking to Solomon. And, and he says to him, uh, what is it that I shall give unto you? Ask, as high as the heavens. You ask, what is it that you want? And now my kids were very small. I think that the youngest one, Anna, may have been around four years old at the time. That would have made the oldest one around 10. So I'm not expecting especially profound things to come out of them. You know, uh, what, do you, what do you expect from a 10-year-old or whatever? You know, I just wanted them to think. If you were asked, what is it that I can give anything that you can think of anything you want. What do you want? So I just wanted to see where my kids were spiritually. And so I still remember, you know, Corinne and uh, David and Joseph all answering in a way that they thought would be pleasing to me. Oh, I would want to know you more, God, or things like that. You know, and I'm thinking, right, you know. The only one who was really upfront and honest was Anna. She was only around four. So I said, okay, baby, God is going to give you anything that you ask him for, anything. What is it that you want? I'll never forget. She looks at me and she says, gum. That was it. You know? She's still that way. She still loves gum and so does her daughter. I mean, that was my Anna. I mean, but you want to know something? I think many of us are pretty much like that to this day. We ask for things that are used up momentarily. But when God said to Solomon, what is it? Ask of me. What do you desire? What shall I give you? 1 Kings 3 verse 9 gives us his answer. Give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? What do I want more than anything? I'm but a youth. I don't have wisdom. I don't know how to go out, and I can't even come in when it's raining. I don't have any wisdom. Therefore, give me wisdom, because I've been placed in a position of being king over your great people. So what I desire more than anything is a heart of wisdom. And God responded in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 12, and uh, he said, I have, I have done according to your words, 
See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. And in 1 Kings 4, 29 through 34, God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding, largeness of heart like the sand of the seashore. The Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan, the Ezraite, and Heman, Chalcol, and Darda, the son of Mahol. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish. And men of all nations, from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom, came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Can you imagine that? People were coming from everywhere just to hear this incredibly wise man. And that's why he says that he was the wisest. I, uh, going on, I should say that Ecclesiastes was written probably around 935 years before Christ. It is one of three books that are attributed to Solomon. It's been said, and if you think about it, it makes some sense, that he wrote Song of Solomon when he was a young man. When you read the Song of Solomon, you can see a young man would write like that. He was a young man. But then it goes on, and, and it, he more than likely wrote the book of Proverbs when he was in his middle age. But you can see in the book of Ecclesiastes, this would have been a book that was written in his older age. And so he wrote three books, and this is the one that was written as he was an older man. This is the book of Ecclesiastes. Again, beginning at verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So Solomon identifies himself, notice, as the preacher, the son of David. Uh, the word preacher in the Hebrew language speaks of a a, a public speaker. It speaks of a, a speaker in an assembly. And so the preacher is a title. It, it's repeated a variety of times here as we go through Ecclesiastes. You'll see him use that, that title various times as a self-identifier. He is someone who is speaking openly. And this is what the preacher has to say. Verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor? in which he toils under the sun. So he begins by saying, everything is vain, all is vanity. So he begins with a strong statement. Everything that he's encountered in life can be categorized as futility, as vanity. His opening thought is a life not dedicated to God is aimless, it's empty, it's unsatisfying. Jesus would ask the same kind of question. He did so in, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26. Jesus asked this question. He said, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What would you give in exchange for your soul? Uh, when we're young, we don't think of our soul very much. When we're middle-aged, we may begin to start thinking, I'm growing older I wonder if I've accomplished the things that I would have liked to have accomplished. I wonder 
if I moved in the right direction. Then we have that middle, you know, midlife crisis, you know. Uh, I, I should have bought a motorcycle. I should have wore gold chains and opened my shirt up more. And <laughs> we go through our midlife crisis, you know. When you get old, you begin to think about a life that you've lived. And you begin to wonder, did I do the right thing? Did I go in the right direction? Did I choose the things that had value? Was I always pursuing the things that didn't last? Did I always want things that really perished with the using? What did it profit me and what does it profit me? So he begins with that question, a question that many people relate to. He begins with a question that the majority of people have asked or will ask. And that question, verse 3, what profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? What's the use of all of this? Why am I working in the first place? I can attempt to find meaning in my physical labor, but it will always be unsatisfying. If it were possible, I could become rich, perhaps famous, but you can have a, a nine ache, a, an ache in your heart, an emptiness in your heart. You can have everything that money can buy and still be very lonely. You can have enough money to purchase anything in any store at any time and still be empty. Somebody in this room says, well, look, give me a chance to find that out on my own. <laughs> but it's true. But it's true. You can have so many things and you discover at the end that things did not make you satisfied. My father, as a young man, was in the Navy and he served in World War II and he had a chance to travel a bit. He was on a battleship called the USS Pennsylvania. And my father had a chance to see some of the world and when he got out of the military, he had the travel bug. My dad had always wanted to travel and to see things and and uh, never had an opportunity really to do as much as he would have liked. And one day when I was a young man, my mom was speaking to me. And my mom said something to me that I've never forgotten. It bears repetition at this point to emphasize the point that I'm making. My mom said to me, you know, son, when your dad was young, he wanted to travel. And he had a friend. And his friend traveled a lot. And his friend would bring uh, movies and show my dad these little video clips, uh, movie clips of Italy or Spain or the various places he saw. And my mom said, your dad would, would come and talk to me. And, my, and she said, your dad would say to me how he wished he could have traveled. He, he wanted to travel. And my dad, at one point when we were young, little kids, had told my, my mom, you know, I, I've got these small kids, man. I've got kids. And and, and my whole life is going towards, you know, them. My paychecks go towards, you know, buying them clothes and feeding them. And I, my dad went through like, you know, buyer's remorse with his kids, you know. <laughs> you know, can I turn them back, you know. Because he had four of them, and three of them were no good. <laughs> and then... My mom was telling me this, and she said, you know, your dad was jealous of his friend because his friend bought things, his friend traveled, never had children. It was just 
my dad's friend and his wife. And one day, his wife died. And he wasn't that old. And he came and spoke to my dad. And he told my dad something like, Frank, I am so jealous of you. He said, I only had a wife and I never had children. He said, and now I'm alone. He said, you at least will always have your children. And my mom said, your, your father learned the value of his family from one who didn't have one. You know, you can travel. There's nothing wrong with it. If you have a chance, it's always great. I, I think it's a good thing. You expand your horizons. You learn new things. This is not a knock on traveling. What I'm saying is these things are great. The experiences are wonderful, but they don't fill you up. There are other things that matter, and those are the things that we need to discover in our search for purpose. You see, labor in and of itself will bring a certain level of satisfaction, but labor in and of itself leaves us empty. Ecclesiastes, we'll see this later in chapter 6, verse 7, says, all the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. So a material thing does not bring you spiritual satisfaction. Physical labor alone cannot produce spiritual abundance, and physical labor alone cannot produce completeness. Your job in and of itself can never bring spiritually abundant satisfaction. And so from the beginning, he's simply saying life without God is a life lived without meaning. It is simply a grasping for straws. You'll see in chapter 2, verse 11, how he says, I looked on all the works of my hands, all the works that my hands had done, and on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed, all was vanity, grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Again, Jesus in Mark 8, 36 and 37 made it clear. He said, what will it profit a man if he gains the world and loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? So the point he's making is obvious. A life lived without God has no purpose. Therefore, we labor for the things that last beyond a lifetime. Again, John 6, 27, Jesus said, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father set his seal on him. Don't labor for things that don't last. Ultimately, you end up leaving everything you labored for behind. Again, in chapter 2, verse 18, he says, I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And in chapter 2, verse 21, he went on to say, there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. I have to leave it all behind. Not a single thing will be taken with me. And so the only thing that lasts eternally is what we have done for the Lord. And again, Matthew 6, 19 through 21, that's why Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A life that is lived without the Lord is vain. It is aimless. It is without purpose. 
Paul said that in Ephesians 2, in verses 1 through 3. He said, You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. He said, he made you alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That word walked in the original language means to meander. You once walked aimless is what he's saying. You once wandered aimlessly. But when Christ saved you, he made you aware of what eternity is and what purpose is. And there you discovered the meaning of life. And it came through a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So we are wise when we labor in pursuit of the Lord. That's why Colossians 3 verse 2 says, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Pursue the things that last. And from the beginning, the preacher, Solomon, would be making that very clear. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun. Verse 4, one generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south, turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full to the place from which the rivers come. There, they return again. And so he continues on to share and all. And he's comparing here in verses 4, especially 4 through 6, he's comparing the permanence of the earth with the impermanence of man. From outward appearances alone, nature endures longer than human flesh. Nature, he's saying, seems to be in an endless cycle of activity. It goes on forever. But in contrast, Man is simply passing through. In verse 7, all the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. Your, your, your lifespan is, is short in comparison to these things, to the mountains, to the seas, the rivers, the deserts. It's like what Job said in chapter 14 of the book of Job, verses 1 and 2. He said, a man who was born of woman is a few days and full of troubles. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. Compared to the centuries, some things exist. Man's lifetime is brief. Psalm 90 verse 10 tells us that Moses said that the days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. 70 years. Maybe if you're strong, 80 and then you're gone. Now, that's not a real cheery thought, is it? Especially to some of my gray hairs out there, including me. That's not a cheery thought. But the point is, it should cause us to consider making best use of time. In James 4, verse 14, you do not know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. We have to understand that. Teach us to number our days. Teach us to realize. I was just speaking to someone just uh, recently, just within the last couple of days, a young man. 
He's, uh, I think he's around 45. That's a child to me now. He's a baby. He was in his pampers. And as we were talking, I asked him, I said, uh, what are you doing for your retirement? And he says, I said, you ought to do something in the event that the Lord tarries. You ought to do something. If you can, you ought to. Well, I said, listen, I said, uh, I didn't begin doing anything till I was 50, 51 years old. I have a friend of mine who didn't start preparing for retirement till he was 62. He's not going to retire. So we were talking, and I said, it's a wise thing to make sure that, and we'll see this, by the way, next, next time we're together. We'll look at this in chapter 2. Because a wise man leaves something for his children's children. And it's a wise thing to think in terms of future because your life is just a vapor. And I said, you know, I can remember when I was 45, and I felt like I had so many years ahead. And, and yet you really don't. So you have to be aware of that. From the moment a person, this is cheery, here's a cheery thought for you. From the moment you are conceived, you begin to die. And it may end 80 years later, but it does end. And so we need to learn to number our days and to use them with wisdom and to realize that we are a vapor. And, and this is coming from the pen of the wisest man on the face of the earth, Solomon. And he's saying, this is what I know. And we are wise if we listen to his wisdom. And he's saying that. He's making it very clear. One generation passes away, another generation comes. The earth abides forever. It seems to be permanent. The sun rises, the sun goes down, hastens to the place where it is. There are cycles of life. The wind goes toward the south, turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually. It seems to be without cessation of any sort, constantly moving. All the rivers run into the sea. The sea's not full to the place from which the rivers come. There they return again. Then verse 8, all things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eyes not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. So that communicates again the vastness of creation. Nature is in the constant state of activity. It is constantly changing. It never seems to be at rest. So man, for all his activity, is constantly in motion, but never simply at rest. He will never really have it outside of the rest you have in the Lord. So the eye isn't satisfied with seeing. The ear is not filled with hearing. In an entire lifetime, you never completely exhaust your ability to see and hear. As long as you have eyes to see and ears to hear, they never get full. There's no, there's no sign like you used to see in some old cartoons where the eyes would suddenly say full. That doesn't happen. You are never completed until you go to be the Lord, you know, on this earth. You never, it's never full. And your ears are always constantly hearing. You're, you're, you're always listening. Uh, there's always sounds. Even when you're asleep and you think you're not listening, you're always hearing. That's what's taking place. It's like Google is always listening to you. There's a big thing going on with that some of you are aware of right now because your phone is constantly recording everything. If you've got a phone, it's constantly 
recording everything you you're, you're everywhere you're going, and and it's 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 all locking in. There's all, all kinds of of information on you that if they wanted to, if people wanted to, they could tell you where you went at what time, getting out of your car, and and all the locations right now. And all of us have our phones, and it's one of those ways that we are. And I'm not preaching, by the way, something for you to be afraid of. You know, I'm not. We're not going to have a phone burning. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying that you are being tracked 24-7. And you can say something like, man, I need to get to a gym. Man, I got to get to the gym. And tomorrow, you're going to have some kind of feed that's going to give you the locations of gyms. And some of you have discovered that, haven't you? You say, how come I'm getting things about a gym? Did you tell? It's because there's an information source, a constant thing. They're always listening. Well, it's never full. And so... No matter what it is that we see, no matter what it is that we hear, you always desire to see and to hear more. Beauty doesn't necessarily fulfill us. You're going to always want to see something a bit different. In, in Proverbs 27, verse 20, the eyes of man are never satisfied. So it's just, it's constant. You can see, you can want more. You can see, you can want more. It, it says in verse 9, that which has been is what will be. Uh, that which is done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. Man's desires, man's complaints, man's pursuits are always basically the same. As far as something completely new, ultimately, we don't necessarily create, we innovate. Uh, People constantly look for something new and different, but there's really no such thing as something that is completely new. And somebody says, oh, no, wait a minute. You know, look at the latest cars. You know, well, before there were cars, there were carts. Before there were carts, there was something that had some form of wheels. I mean, it's just innovation. It's not a new creation. That's the point he's making, is we simply innovate, but we're not really, we're not really creating anything that's new and completely different. It's all basically the same. And so, uh, you know, styles and, and music uh, are, are constantly recycled. You know that. You know, in, in our society, you know that. I, I kind of, I find it interesting now to watch the recycled things because, you know, I've lived long enough to see something come in and become popular and then fade in popularity. And then suddenly it's back again. And it was, it was goofy then and now it's goofy again, you know. I, I get entertained by pseudo-hippies, by the kids today who are trying to act like they're hippies and they talk like they're hippies. You know, they're not hippies, they're dippies. You know, they're, <laughs> you know, it's just recycled things. That's all it is. And he says in verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after History is soon forgotten in our never-ending quest for something new and improved. You're here today. You're gone tomorrow. And nobody remembers your accomplishments. I, verse 12, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. So he says, I set my heart to seek. When he says, I set my heart, 
The heart speaks of intellectual faculties. He's saying, I applied my mind to seek. I determined to search out by wisdom all that was done under heaven. I searched out the meaning and purpose of life here on planet Earth. I wanted to understand why men do what they do, socially, politically, privately. And he said in verse 13, this burdensome task God has given to the sons of man. So these things in the garden were already known. But after the fall, it became a task. It is something that we are trained by as we seek out purpose and we seek out meaning. And in many ways, this life is difficult and this life is filled with pressures. He says, God has given this task to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. It's a difficult task to discover the purpose of life. So in verse 14, I've seen all the works that are done under the sun. Indeed, all is vanity, grasping for the wind. I've looked at how human beings behave and what drives them. They all seem unsatisfied. Life on earth is painful. And life, because it is difficult, can break a person's spirit. So human efforts and achievements, he's saying, ultimately are vanity. They're meaningless. They don't have any purpose or meaning without God. He says in verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking, it cannot be numbered. You see, frustration does arise when we try to correct the problems of man without God. When we encounter problems, we try to solve them without moral directions. A lot of people try to help other people to get well or to gain purpose, but they don't consider God's word, and they don't ask God for his help. So we try to fix lives. We can even try to fix our own lives without him. But what happens is you come to a place of frustration. I got to that place. You did too. If you have any testimony of ever remembering to be without Christ. Some of you were raised in Christian homes. You have a different path that you took. But for those of us who didn't get saved until we had lived for a while, I can tell you life was difficult. I can tell you it was a pressure. I could tell you that it had no meaning. I could tell you that as a young person, I had no purpose. I had no hope. I had no joy. I had, I had no plans for the future. I had no hope for the future. Because in my day, it's similar to what it is today. Things don't really change. What was, is, and what is, was once. It, don't, it doesn't change. He makes that point. Um, yeah, we had questions about climate when I was 20, 21 years old. Uh, yeah, but at that time, it wasn't that everything was getting too hot. At that time, everybody said, we're going to freeze. That's what they said back in the 60s, late 60s, and early 70s. Some of you may know that. It's, you, there's going to be another great freeze. But climate was a question. We had questions about justice. We had questions about, you name it, whatever's going on now, we had the same kinds of questions. They don't change. The questions don't change. What are you going to do about the unjustness in society? What are you going to do about the impoverished? What are you going to do about wars? What are you going to do? And we would talk about those things and how are we going to handle inequities and how are we, that was our generation, that's this generation. It's not brand new. The things that are happening, well, they all have been done under the sun. 
All is vanity. All is grasping for the wind, he's saying. It's all basically the same. We have encountered problems. We try to solve them. When you go to school, and some people go to school, and I'll tell you this, I know this for a fact, and it's been demonstrated in things that have been printed, but there are many people who go to college, for example, and they, they want to be a, a psychologist. So they're taking psych, 101 and whatever, and they go on to get their degrees and all in psychology. But the teachers will tell you this. How do I know? Because I was a psych major. That's how I know. And they said, you know the reason people are taking psych classes, classes and, and social science classes, which were the other classes I took, is because they're trying to find purpose, meaning, and explanations for behaviors. And that's true. That's absolutely true. Many people who were going for their degrees in psychology were really self-analyzing. They wanted to know why they were messed up. That's a fact. They wanted to know why they think the way they think and why they do the things they do. And they were looking for explanations for that. And they went to confused teachers who had taken God out of the equation, and all they ended up with was more questions and more hopelessness. That's a fact. More questions and more hopelessness. And for those of you who've been to college, you know this is true. You go into a class expecting to get answers, and you leave that class with more questions because the professors present questions but very seldom present any real answers. And then the answers that they give to you, if it's a secular college, are almost always without God in the equation. And Solomon would say, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Everything is futile when you don't have God in the equation. Everything is. That's what we're seeing here in the quest for purpose. What do we do to solve the problems that we see people have? What does this nation do? I wrote some things down. What do we do to solve the problems? Well, we pass out birth control in high school. We provide transportation to clinics to high schoolers who want to get an abortion without notifying the parents. We legalize drugs. We provide clean syringes to junkies. We call various sexual partners lovers. We reclassify homosexuality and make it acceptable and even normal. We say that AIDS is caused by a virus, not drugs or promiscuous sex. We refer to abortion as a woman's right to choose. We call alcohol and drug dependency a disease. And we create various genders for people to choose from. That's how we handle our difficulties. We don't. We just create new categories and invent answers that satisfy, satisfies no one. So human wisdom excludes what is spiritual, and because it excludes God, it is bankrupt. So in verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be numbered. What is crooked cannot be made straight means it cannot be set in order. What is lacking is something that cannot be provided for by our own efforts. Someone said, human wisdom cannot make straight that which is crooked, and human deficiencies cannot be cured through man's vain attempt at solving problems that in their root is spiritual. And so, verse 16, I communed with my heart, saying, look, I've gained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, 
I set my heart to know wisdom, to, to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I set my heart to know wisdom. Because you see, I had said in verse 16, I attain greatness. I have great knowledge, but I haven't applied wisdom to the knowledge that I have. And because he had great knowledge, Solomon actually became proud of all that he knew. Now, that's something to be aware of because you can actually become proud of all that you know. And in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, Paul very clearly said, knowledge puffs up. The more you know, the greater you may feel yourself to be. And that's why I am fascinated with and such a fan of and in love with Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, well, he could have gone on Jeopardy and won forever. <laughs> he would have never lost. I mean, think about it. And yet read the words of Christ and look at how he handled the questions when the sincere ones would ask them. Look at how he treated children. Look at how he treated babies. Look at how he treated people who tried to keep babies from him. Look at his compassion. Look at his wisdom. Look at how he treated people, and I, I, I admire him. Even when he rebuked those whom he loved, he did so with the gentleness. Martha, Martha, remember that situation with Martha and Mary, how uh, Jesus was there at the meal, and, uh, and Martha was in the kitchen banging pots and pans, kind of like a Thanksgiving meal that you've invited your family to, and everybody's in the front room visiting and drinking coffee, and you're in there all by yourself trying to make sure the turkey's ready and the dressing's ready and the salads are ready and, and those rolls are ready, and you, you look in the door and you see your sister sitting there just visiting with the Bible open, and you get mad, and you walk in and you say, hey, what do you think, man? Come and help me. But in Martha's case, she went a step further. She walked up to God himself and rebuked him. Think about that. I mean, think about it. Don't you care that I'm here working by myself? Tell her to get up and help me. I'm banging these pans in here making matzo ball soup, and you're not doing anything about it. Can you imagine? Martha, Martha, you are overwhelmed and troubled by many things. But your sister has chosen the better part. You see, before you serve me, you need to learn from me. Before you do something for me, you need to learn who I am and why you should do those things. And if you think that I'm more blessed by the meal than I am in giving a meal, my word, you've got things to learn. You see, even in his conversations, there's a gentleness that Jesus knew all things all things that he needed to know. And yet he didn't have an arrogance. But then on the other hand, you see the Pharisees, you see the Sadducees, the religious leaders, and you'll hear their questions 
and you will see their arrogance in them. And that's the knowledge that puffs up, that knowledge that makes you think you know more because you have information. And so the bottom line is, he could have been proud. I communed with my heart saying, look, I've attained greatness, have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and great knowledge. I, I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this is also grasping for the wind. I, I lived as a wise man, and I've experienced life as one who's a fool and crazy. And I've discovered something, verse 18, in much wisdom is much grief. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Happiness is not the ultimate product of an education. Keep that in mind. He who increases knowledge, he says, increases sorrow. Happiness is not necessarily the product of an education. Many college students can tell you that their faith, their innocence was actually stolen from them when they were in college. Their innocence very often has been stolen by a professor who kept on citing statistics and studies and, and ridiculing their faith in Christ. And their faith in God has been undermined. I did my time in college. I went to both secular and Christian colleges. And in the secular college, I had professors who outright told us that they thought we were foolish. Outright. I don't know how you could believe in that little book, that little black book that you say is from God. The first day of one class, I still remember a professor of a, a sociology class that I took, and he said, how many of you, how many of you believe, are, are born-again Christians? That's a, how many of you are born-again Christians? There were about 30 of us in the class, and about four or five of us raised our hands. The very first lecture, very first class. How many of you are born-again Christians? Raised our hands. I don't understand how you can believe in that little black book. I, don't, I believe in studies. He told us, I believe in studies and statistics, scientific knowledge. I do not know how you can walk by or believe these things. How do you live like that? That was our opening conversation. Later on, I still remember him saying, I, I, I pity you guys, he said, because you've been told that cigarettes can cause cancer. He says, I have studies in my office I can bring here and show you that demonstrate that there's no correlation between tobacco and lung cancer. He died of lung cancer. He did. He died of lung cancer. He had three wives. He had been married three times, but he pitied me because I was happily married. But that's only because I'm stupid, I guess, because I'm a believer, and he didn't respect us. I had more than one professor like that. And you go to class, and you have him making fun or her making fun of you and, and, and calling the things that you believe and hold most dear, calling them foolish and stupid. And after a while you start thinking, you know, that may very well be. I've always just clung to these things because I learned it in Sunday school. I, how would I know whether it's true or not? And these have statistical evidence. And slowly but surely, in your education, well, he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Your joy is stolen from you because it's not centered on God and the wisdom that you receive from him 
to educate a man in mind and not in morals is to educate a menace to society. And that's true. The knowledge that ultimately satisfies is the knowledge of God. Many years ago, now I was invited to go to a high school baccalaureate. They had asked me to give the, the speech at their baccalaureate. And I still, it's been a long time now, I still remember going to do it. It was a Sunday night. And one of the teachers walked up to me and said to me, you cannot mention God. And I thought, how interesting. A baccalaureate is a worship service. That's what a baccalaureate is. Traditionally, in the United States, it's a religious service that is, there, that is uh, tied into the graduation. It was, it was to encourage people to have morals and all. And that, that's what it was like. That's what a baccalaureate is. So you, you, please don't talk. You can't talk about God or Jesus. I said, really? So I went up, and there's all these kids for the baccalaureate. And I still remember some of what I said. I said, listen. You went to four years of high school, and you've had a lot of classes that have given you a lot of information. And they've taught you a lot of things about a lot of things that you will encounter in life. But the one thing they haven't told you is this. Jesus Christ is the Lord. And he died on a cross for you. And you can gain all the information you want in life. But if you don't have the true knowledge of God and sins forgiven, you have no knowledge. And I never was invited back, but guess what? <laughs> That's the truth, right? That's the truth. You don't go up there and say, oh boy, you're going to conquer the world now because you guys are world conquerors. I mean, you, you got to see in math. You're going to be a scientist. <laughs> no. No, what they really needed is true knowledge, and the true knowledge comes through God and sins forgiven. In Proverbs 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's where it begins, knowing God and fearing him. And as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is going to give us examples and tell us how vain it is. Give us examples, tell us how vain it is, until the end when he says the only thing that matters is fear God, keep his commandments. We'll see that as we go through Ecclesiastes.